Hello and welcome everyone to VoIP for Independent Telecoms, the podcast for local service providers who want to provide great services on a resilient network. I'm your host, Andrew Ward from Award Consulting, and I'm joined today by Mark Lindsay from ECG. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Andrew. So for those people listening who don't know you, could you give a, a little kind of introduction to, I, I guess, ECG and also what your role is there? ECG is a small consulting company that has been working in mostly the VoIP telecom space and internet service provider design and engineering and operations since 2002. And my role there is doing uh, engineering work and training engineers and soft, a little bit of software development. I'm a senior member of technical staff there. There's, there's about 20 of us in the company that do the same kind of work that I do. And a particular arm that of our business that I kind of dabble in more than anyone else there is kind of implementing regulations. So doing the engineering around, you know, regulatory compliance. Wonderful. Cool. Thank you. So yeah, ECG has been around since 2002. And I think we probably first met maybe four or five years into that. I, I was trying to figure it out. I think maybe 2006-ish where you, you taught a class on IP networking. Do you remember teaching me in that class? Yeah, that was, that was great. We, we tried to fit in three weeks of material in, in five days and I got some good feedback. That was a lot of fun, but yeah, I got a chance to teach a, a whole team of MetaSwitch staff. I think there were, there were, you were there. I think you were a pretty senior. CSE at the time. And then there were some other kind of new hires and it was a lot of material. I think Paul Drew was the one who had sort of made the checklist of things he wanted me to work through in that class. And so I blame him for, for going really fast, but yeah, we did IP routing and Ethernet switching and SIP and uh, RTP and MGCP. It was, it was a lot for, you know, one week. Yeah. I but think that was a great class for me as somebody who was, you know, yeah, pretty familiar with you know, with, with VoIP and stuff at that point and had some level of understanding of IP networks, I was able to keep up, but I learned a lot. Possibly the folks who are brand new on the team might've had a, a bit of a harder time. <laughs> my my main memory is standing in the parking lot of the MetaSwitch office in Reston with pieces of string, um, trying to kind of demonstrate through a practical exercise with the string, how ARP, ARP works. So that was, right. that was a lot of fun and a, a memorable approach to teaching. So I, I still remember that and appreciate it. Anyway, today we are joining together to do an episode talking about robocalls and unusually and thankfully for once, not stir shaken. So it's, <laughs> that's a change for me. I feel like I've spent my life talking and writing about stir shaken for the last two years, but we're still on a related topic, but uh, this time it's more about the robocalls themselves. And the reason we wanted to do this is that there's a fair bit of confusion among service providers about what they're supposed to be doing for the robocalls and also what they're allowed to do, you know, in terms of blocking, in terms of preventing the calls. And that's what we want to explore a little bit today. Before we start, I should give a caveat that neither of us are lawyers. And so while we hope this is helpful, please don't rely solely on us. This is not legal advice. We do not really know what we're talking about in terms of the law. We might have read bits of the regulations, but we are not we are not the sole experts you should rely on. That's right. I'm an engineer, not a lawyer. I work closely with lawyers, specifically the particular legal team we work with is the Com Law Group, and Robert Jackson is the regulatory attorney that I've worked with the most there. And you know, there's a common mistake here, Andrew, which is that folks will with a really good intentions, they'll say, well, just let the lawyers tell us what to do and we'll do them. Like, it, you know, so I'll hear that from engineers, technicians. That's not exactly fair uh, to the lawyers. While it's it's definitely true that you want to get their direct instructions and their indications of what the laws are, they help you interpret it. It's not quite fair to them to expect that they're going to know about all the call routing scenarios that you have to deal with and all the feature scenarios you have to deal with. 
And so one of the one of the things that I've enjoyed most about working with Robert is that I can go back and forth on network diagrams and particular call routing scenarios and you know Madden groups and simultaneous ring and call routing in and out. And, and because often the attorneys are not aware of the 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 number of uh, flexible options, the fact that well these calls are over TDM and these calls are over SIP and and these calls are this is a one way SIP trunk group and. And this uh, simultaneous ring is going to, it could be going to a cell phone in this case, but it's, you know, it's not in every case and things like that to basically go back and forth. So I think the the lawyers deserve the opportunity to have some back and forth dialogue. And usually they appreciate that. They may not be able to kind of give the, the a final sort of answer where they can point at something from the law and says, this is what you do in the case of a Madden group, but they can usually interpret and that's, that's what they're good at doing. And so I think they deserve the chance to interact and engineers deserve a chance to interact with lawyers, to have that chance to ask those questions, to try to get to the bottom. So that's what I've done. And that's really the basis of, of my information here is trying to interact, to go back and forth, to ask questions and say, but that doesn't sound right. And then to, to get to something that we can actually build the network to actually do. That's really cool. So while we're sitting here saying we are not lawyers, the lawyers are sitting there saying we are not engineers. But if you combine the two and have a good conversation, then hopefully you can get to a, a practical and accurate uh, implementation of what the law says. I think so. Cool. All right. So robocall blocking, I think maybe as a starting point, it's worth talking about where in the network robocall blocking might happen. And from my perspective, there are two core places that you see it. Uh, first is at the source, so the originating service provider, and then predictably the second is at the destination, um, the destination service provider. Mark, do you want to maybe expand a little bit on that and why people would tend to block in both of those two places? Yeah, so you use the term source and destination, and, and actually this is one of the, the key places people have to get started. When you read the regulations from the FCC or from your lawyer, they're going to talk about originating and terminating. And that's really corresponding to source and destination. So source is where you're originating calls, they're leaving your equipment, they're going off to the PSTN, they're leaving your network. And I'm using the PSTN to mean any part of the, the network that you can call using telephone numbers that not, that's not your own network. So it's a SIP or TDM or anything. So it's originating or source-based uh, call blocking is trying to protect the rest of the world against your customers. So let's say you've got a customer and they signed up with a credit card. You don't know anything about them and they start blasting out calls. Well, that could easily be a robocaller. But let's say you've also got a totally legit customer. They've got a SIP trunk and their SIP PBX gets hacked and suddenly now they're blasting out robocalls. Well, both of those in both of those cases, your network is originating. It's the source of robocalls going out to the outside world. And sort of the big punchline here is, and the FCC expects you to get involved as a service provider operating that equipment. So then there's as the destination, there's blocking on the destination side. And that's the one that folks will usually jump to because it's personal experience. If you have a cell phone or a, a landline phone, any kind of phone, you're getting inbound robocalls right now. And so on a, on a regular basis. And so that's where people are experiencing it, where the frustration occurs. And so where your customers are probably calling in and complaining about why won't my phone stop ringing. And so that kind of blocking is also allowed, but it's not expected and required by the FCC. And that's a, that's a big difference. So I've had some meetings just in the past couple of months where everyone was thinking that the FCC was expecting that you're going to protect your own customers against those inbound calls. And you're allowed to do that with restrictions. You're allowed to provide a service like that. There's even cases where you're allowed to charge a fee for it, but that's not what the FCC is expecting. You're, you're, you're allowed to not do it as well. You're allowed to just let those spam calls go to your customers unrestrained but you are required and expected to do something to protect the rest of the world against your network. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you can see why people will be motivated to address both of those. You know, on the source side, as you say, it's a requirement by the FCC for you not to send the robocalls out. And potentially, you know, you can get sued if you, you know, don't do a good job there. And certainly there are industry traceback groups that will try to identify how the robocalls got into the network. And then on the destination side, while you're not required to do it, you might experience some pressure from your customers to help them to not receive robocalls. So there are more market-driven reasons why you might want to look at that. Mm-hmm. So let's focus on the source to start with, because that's where the requirements are uh, from the FCC. And one of the big things that happened last year in you know, with the June 2021 deadline that affected all service providers, regardless of size, was a robocall mitigation database that the FCC set up. And everybody had to submit a robocall mitigation plan into that database, or at least those who weren't doing stir shake. And there's maybe some slight slight variance there, mm-hmm. depending on exactly what you did. But can you tell us a bit, Mark, about robocall mitigation and you know how how we should be thinking about that, maybe what the FCC thinks it is and what in practice you're seeing people doing? So robocall mitigation in general is trying to stop illegal calls from leaving a service provider network. And it's, uh, so these are efforts by that service provider to protect the rest of the world against any kind of illegal traffic leaving your network. So while we frequently will just use the word robocalling, technically robocalling itself is not illegal. It is totally legal for the airline who has an established relationship with their the customers to make automatic robocalls out to all those customers to say that their flight has been canceled or for school districts to do it. Or for reverse 911, where the municipality will make outbound emergency calls to say something's happened. That uh, there are many cases where robocalls are illegal, but the kinds of uh, calls that service providers are expected to do something about are, of course, the illegal kind. So that that sometimes that word gets left out of the description because, of course, it's the robocall mitigation database. And so it's important to keep that in mind that we're really talking about illegal robocalls. But the illegal robocalls are the ones that... Um, the FCC is expecting service providers to be taking what they call affirmative steps to mitigate. So the robocall mitigation database is a place where you register, like you said, one, one key factor is whether you've got stir shaken implemented. Another one is what steps you're taking to prevent robocalls from leaving your network and going out to the rest of the world. So on the extreme easy end, you've got, you know, some of our clients who have operate networks that are very narrowly managed. So they don't allow their customers to bring along any external phone numbers, which is to say every time a customer makes a call, maybe through their MetaSwitch platform, that it's using a telephone number directly assigned by that service provider. So it's fully symmetric. There's no kind of external phone numbers being used. So that's a an example of the kind of thing that actually is a is a little step towards mitigating robocalling because that there's no chance of using a fraudulent phone number uh, as part of that. They have to use their own phone number, and it's actually against the law to use a, another phone number to spoof caller ID to uh, get anything of value or to cause any kind of harm when if there's any kind of fraud or deceit involved in that. And so that's one of those little things. So you might say, well, we don't allow a robocall mitigation database entry might uh, list the thing, the, the properties of our of our network that uh, reduce the risk of our network being used for outbound fraud. But like the example I gave a minute ago, anybody SIF PBX can be hacked and can be used to launch outbound calls. So just having customers that you have good relationships with that you know isn't on its own quite enough to to stop the problem from your network. The FCC is really looking for and expecting, and a lot of other industry organizations are expecting the service providers to actually take more steps than that to detect, well, what if a CPBX gets hacked? 
are we going to be able to detect it? Is there something in our network that's going to be able to detect it? Or if one of our customers starts using alternate numbers that they didn't really have permission to use that number, and maybe we didn't have cold screening set up the way we thought we did, are we going to be able to detect that that, that change, that anomaly has happened? And so the RoboGall mitigation database entries really tell a story about what kind of technologies are in place um, to prevent those kinds of, kind of things. But they're effectively an effort to attest to the FCC. These are the things that we're promising to do to prevent it. What matters more than just what you write down is obviously actually what you're doing, what you're really doing to prevent the robocalling. And so the very minimum that service providers are expected to do is to respond to traceback requests. You mentioned the industry traceback group. So if there are calls leaving my network and they're going out and then I get a traceback request because there's some... Uh, concerned that this might have been an illegal call, then I have to participate with that. So I'm required to, to participate with the industry traceback group. That's the that's kind of the very minimum. But what can happen if I if I only stick with that minimum and I don't do anything else, I don't actually stop the traffic whenever it's determined to be illegal. Then the FCC has a new hammer, and they can actually go to all of the other service providers that I'm interconnected with, which could be you know big companies like Bandwidth and Verizon. They could be AT and T uh, via TDM, and they could say, well, you, you have to stop taking calls from, you know, Mark Lindsay Telecom. We have to stop doing that. So that's a pretty big hammer that they have. To, if I don't do my job of preventing that robocalls, the robocalls from leaving the network. The interesting change is that while call blocking historically was always a big problem, we didn't want any call blocking. You know, we, we in fact, we see stories like T-Mobile fined $40 million for blocking calls going to rural telephone numbers just a few years ago that almost on a dime, we've seen this stop and the shift so that, well, we still cannot block calls going to rural destinations. We would never want to do that simply because we have a preference to not route certain kinds of calls. We do have to block calls that are illegal. And then for years, the TCPA, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, really made it an illegal, illegal for callers to place certain kinds of calls, pre-recorded message, auto-dialed calls, things like that, calls to numbers that are on the Do Not Call Registry. But that was not the responsibility of service providers until now. And now it is. So every service provider, every independent telecom, every uh, CLEC, every VoIP service provider who's not, you know, never, doesn't file a 499, all of those organizations are now in the business of policing illegal calls from leaving their network. And so that's really the big change. And that's really what robocall mitigation is all about. It's about policing your network to ensure that your network is not a source of illegal traffic. It's worth uh, noting that, yeah, you, you mentioned, you know, defining illegal is a little bit complex. I have an article, which I will put in the show notes, a link to, um, which gives a little diagram trying to explain the rules. And it, you know, it depends on whether the destination number is a wireline number or a wireless number. It depends on whether they're on the do not call registry. It depends on whether an auto dialer was used. There's a whole bunch of different parameters. Um, but if you are interested, you can you can take a look at that. I think one interesting thing about the way the FCC has approached this is they haven't defined what you need to do, right? So in your example, if your, if your network was very simple, I can totally imagine that you might have a small rural telecom that maybe doesn't even have any business lines. They've just got residential lines. There's no possibility of a PBX sending out mm -hmm. random calls. Each line can only make one call at a time. And it's probably enough to simply have, do, you know, to have know your customer you know, logic and to understand the technical limitations of your network and say, based on the technical network, we couldn't 
you know, we couldn't place a large quantity of, of robocalls. But then it, it hugely depends on your network. And really, the FCC, as you mentioned, what they care about is the result, not what you did. You need to take actions that have the result of not creating the robocalls. So if you have a more complex network, then you're going to need to take more significant action to address that. On the outbound side, there are various third-party um, tools that you can use, various providers who have kind of data analytics tools to kind of look for you know, bad calls. Could you share a little bit about just from your experience, like how they approach that? Like how can a tool look at a call and decide this looks like a robocall or not? I mean, because surely a call is just a call. Yeah, it largely depends on the calling party number and its use in time, in especially recently. And so there are a number of pretty big companies that are working in this space that, and so we'll, I'll talk about just a few examples of them. So for example, Newstar offers a product that is based on examining calls. It's also, they basically combine it with their store. So you can service a certified caller and it examines the uh, calling party of the calls, but also basically in context of the other signaling data that Newstar has. And so if, if Newstar can see that there is some pattern that appears to be related to illegal calling, robocalling, then Newstar would be able to give this call a grade and of an estimate of how likely they think this is to be a, a, an illegal robocall. And then you would have tools within their framework to do something about it. So that's kind of, I'm describing it as Newstar, but that's generally the approach that's taken across them. So how would, how could these different companies uh, do it. So for one thing, it's worth noting, they all, it's all secret calls. And so they all have different methods. The FCC has this term that they call reasonable analytics, and they give about a dozen different things that you might use. So for one of them, one of them might mean, has this calling party number been used in the past? So for example, if this calling party number has never been used to make a call in the history of mankind, then in suddenly it's making 10,000 calls an hour, then that's kind of a clue. And some, some providers will call that uh, calling velocity is where you're suddenly seeing a single a single phone number being very prevalent. Or if you're seeing that a single calling party number is being used to uh, call numbers that are all in a certain area. Uh, so for example, I did a, a database lookup a couple of weeks ago on a, a robocall that I got, and I saw that uh, the particular number was a local numbers in my region here in North Carolina, and it was only used for making robocalls to other numbers within my region. So that's a, a form of kind of neighbor fraud where they the scammers picked a local number and they were placing calls only to my area, but they had only started uh, doing it recently. Uh, that I think they had placed a few calls a few weeks ago, kind of apparently as a test, and then they come back and they do some other calls later. So you can imagine there's kind of an arms race here where the scammers are trying to see what, to probe what works, to see what calls they can get delivered. And then the uh, mitigation providers, like Newstar in my example, would be basically up to try to figure out how to detect those uh, particular calls and to, to give them a score to, to rate them. So for example, Newstar looks at calls in real time and they do that. I think TNS can provide a similar product that's integrated with a QCall. A TransNexus uh, could do something similar. They can inter integrate with a lot of different databases, but one of them that they work with is TrueCNAM, TruSpam. And so they look at calling party information. So they can do a lot of the same kind of analytics, just using slightly different data sets. And so one of the big sort of takeaways here is the quality of the data really matters, how they go about getting the data. And so those companies that I just mentioned, Newstar, TNS, TransNexus, they're, they're often looking at call setup information. So you could think of it as SIP invite, SS7IM type of, you know, call attempt type of things. There's, there's kind of another company that's on, uh, that takes a different technology approach. Umail is really interesting because they actually provide the primary service is a voicemail uh, service. And so they, with, with customer permission, will actually analyze 
the audio of calls and try to detect whether the call appears to be a pre-recorded robocall. So are they getting similar kinds of audio uh, that's being left as voicemail or, or that's going into their honeypot networks? And you see these companies, I know, for example, True CNAM, True Spam, that's integrated with TransNexus, they also operate honeypots. So they'll have phone numbers out there and they're just waiting for the bad guys to call in and place these. So in all of these cases, whether you're looking at call audio, the way email is, and then recording the use of this number, and or you're looking at real-time call signaling data like TNS and TransNexus and Newstar are, all of them are trying to come up with some estimate based on this, what the FCC would call, quote unquote, reasonable analytics. Now, one of those is actually based on the stir-shaken data, but there's so little stir-shaken data out there on the network, but proportionally, uh, there are so few identity headers with passwords floating around that it only contributes a little bit of information to the picture. It's important information, but it only contributes a little bit. And the guys at TransNexus uh, do some really cool analytics looking at how that data is being used and uh, where it's being used and how the spammers, because they actually kind of get a read on the stir-shaken data as compared to the likelihood that this was a, an illegal robocall. And so they look at some correlations there. Well, what are the scammers doing to adapt to the new stir-shaken requirements? So that's interesting stuff to look at, but that's also part of the secret sauce that these different data providers are, are using to try to make an estimate about whether a particular call is likely to be a robocall or not. And there's a number of other companies doing the same kind of thing. Among the big providers, you know, AT&T, I know historically has used Haya. First Orion was the choice for T-Mobile. So you've got these different companies and they're really growing out of their strength of their ability to detect robocalls. And a lot of it has to do with the quality of their data, the quality of their analytics to, to do so. Yeah, years ago, I did a, a conference talk at a MetaSwitch forum about like machine learning and data and big data and everything. And this is obviously one of the, the core applications of this in today's you know, uh, PSTN mm -hmm. is to do this kind of analytics. If people want to go deeper into that, then I do have an article about email in particular. And there's a podcast episode where I interviewed Greg Blumstein from True CNAM. So we've got some more detailed deep dives into those things if you are interested. Is there anything else we should talk about on Outbound? And if not, I'd like to switch over and talk about what people can do on the terminating side. Yeah, the, the flowchart you mentioned about determining Outbound calls, the likelihood of being illegal for Outbound calls, it's really challenging. You're not required to get it perfect. I think that's one of the key points that there's some protection about blocking outbound calls that are coming from uh, sources that are very likely to be illegal. So for example, the FCC, the rules mention calls from invalid phone numbers from unallocated number blocks. If you have the ability to determine whether or not a phone number has been assigned, you can use that data as well. Although that's awfully hard. I, I don't know how I would go find out whether TDS Telecom, you know, for example, has, that, has assigned a particular number. I can tell whether it's allocated, you know, from, from NANPA, but whether it's assigned or not, I, I would have to have some other database. There's also a do not originate registry. There's actually multiple do not orig originate registries. So if you've got your customers placing calls from the social security, a hundred number, then that's a sign that there's a problem. And so they've got kind of a category of these are clearly illegal. And then, like you said, they haven't been super clear on kind of what you're supposed to do. What they basically say is you're allowed to do to block all of these kind of scenarios. You're allowed to block all these uh, calls that are likely to be illegal. And on the other hand, if you are still allowing illegal traffic from your network, then we're allowed to block you. And so we're allowed to just turn you off. And so it kind of, it, it sort of uh, hems you in a little bit as a service provider. I'm allowed to do this blocking. And they basically tell me that if I'm still, a, if I'm allowing, if I'm failing to mitigate this illegal outbound traffic, they're allowed to you know stop me. So that basically kind of gives a center line where I need to do what I can to block traffic. And so that's where you see service providers they're not trying to develop this themselves. Usually they're not building their own, you know, machine learning frameworks for the most part. 
they're going to outside data providers like the ones we mentioned to get that that kind of thing. There's actually an interesting, now you mentioned the mobile phones, whether the, as part of TCPA, you're not allowed to place an auto dial call to a mobile phone. Um, one of the fascinating uh, features here is we're all familiar with simultaneous ring features, you know, find me, follow me type features that ring both a desk phone and a mobile phone. And historically, this mobile phone prohibition was interpreted to mean that it, it was going to a telephone number that was assigned, or I could look in the LMP database and that could determine that this was ported to a mobile number, but no more. There was actually a uh, federal court ruling uh, called Brita involving Verizon, actually, Celco partnership, where the court ruled that that they should not have de- assumed that the call was going to a landline phone simply because it was going to a bandwidth.com number. Because it turns out the bandwidth.com user was actually ringing to a, an app on a mobile device. And the court ruled that an app running on a mobile device qualified as a mobile phone for purposes of, of TCPA which means it's almost technically impossible to determine whether or not a call is going to a, a mobile number. Interesting. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I mean, if, if Find Me, Follow Me or a app running on a cell phone is the same as a cell phone, then that means that basically anyone who is placing large volumes of outbound calls has to follow the rules for cell phones, basically, because there's no way of guaranteeing that they're going to a landline anymore following that ruling. That's right. Yeah, that's crazy and uh, makes it harder for the for the callers. Yeah, what, one interesting thing that uh, Greg at True Name said when I spoke to him was that they are actually not trying to determine whether the calls are illegal. They're trying to determine in their reputation scores whether the calls are unwanted, which is in, an interesting slight slight discrepancy um, there. But in, of course, there are a lot more calls that are unwanted than those that, that are strictly illegal. But fundamentally, as a service provider, yeah, you know, I haven't been involved in, a, in any situation where the FCC has, you know, sent somebody a notice, you know, complaining about their behavior. But I would assume as a service provider, you want to be showing that you made your very best efforts to act correctly. And if the FCC does find a case where you, you failed, you obviously want to act very quickly to respond to that and to address the concerns. And I assume they wouldn't block you without giving you some chance to kind of, you know, perform corrective action. Yeah, you can expect some interaction with them. And actually, that's a, that's a great point that you mentioned from Greg. Um, and I, and it raises another issue of call blocking. So for some folks, when we talk about call blocking, they're thinking of an automatic thing, the way that you would do fraud blocking, like, you know, you need your fraud blocking system to automatically block calls to start blasting through your network at 10 PM on Friday. You don't want to wait for a human to, to get in the loop there and stop that. Cause it could be too expensive. And that's what a lot of us are going to think of with call blocking. Well, but the robocall mitigation program does not have to be an automatic, totally machine operated loop. It is totally fine for it to involve a human analytics element. And the question is whether that human is effectively in the loop to mitigate illegal calls. And so one of the ways folks will look at that, and actually um, the classification of calls as being unwanted is actually listed as the FCC as one of the reasonable analytics you might use. So if you've got calls that are going out on the network and you go to a database like Umail and Umail says, yeah, this is getting ranked as unwanted. Like people are, when they get these calls, they, they hit the button for this, I did not want this call then you get that feedback, then that should be part of your data that tells you to go back to your customer and figure out why are you placing so many unwanted calls? Is it is it possible that you're just selling a product nobody wants, but it's you're doing it in a legal way? Or is it possible there's actually a TCPA violation here? And so you're allowed to go back as a human, analyze that, talk to your customer. There's also expectations around working with your customers on, like you said, the know your customer policy to determine whether it appears that your customer is, if they're, for example, if they're using alternate caller IDs, whether they have the right to use those caller IDs. And that's kind of totally aside from Sir Shaken and the attestation level that you that you might put on it. But yeah, so the, the call blocking 
does not have to be an automated process. It can be a human involved process, which means it can involve a lot of like really squishy data in that, in that analytics. But it also means it's going to cost some time uh, to dig through those things and, the, and to check these reports out. Yeah. And, and in practice, in every case where we as a, as a consulting group have been involved helping people with their robocall mitigation, the, the kind of default way that typically small carriers have approached this is if they're using analytics software, they're getting a daily report of suspicious calls. And then there's a manual step to investigate those and you know look at the customer and try to understand what happened. So yeah, we don't actually right. have our clients automatically blocking stuff there's a process to highlight the potential issues and then to investigate. So I think that's a, a very good point to mm -hmm. highlight. Okay. The inbound, the terminating end is in many ways, a lot of the technology is, is very similar, right? If, if you are going to look at calls arriving at your network, terminating to your subscribers, then you know, you're using the same analytics tools that we've just talked about. You're thinking about it in the same way. It's mostly just that the rules are different. You, you know, you, aren't required to block anything, and maybe you might choose to indicate to your subscriber uh, that there is a potential problem, or maybe you know, forward a call to a prompt or something to, to allow it through. There, there are different ways to approach it rather than, than block it. Yeah, what are your thoughts on how you might think about the terminating side of things? Yeah, so terminating is where you actually, you know, genuinely provide a service to your customers that they can directly sense. And so when, for example, my cell phone is on ATT Mobility, when they added uh, their HIA-based call blocking service to uh, my line, that's when it actually started to be sort of helpful. The fact that, the, that they had something in there that actually would uh, block a certain number of calls or give me an indication, a spam likely indication that, that the call was likely, like you said, a warning about that. So that's, this is valuable. It's important for your end users. And it's really where a lot of our minds go because we're, you know, these are our customers and we're trying to protect them. And, the, like you said, the technology is largely the same. In fact, that often the same, very same databases will be used. That one of the, I've done a couple of like informal polls on LinkedIn just to see where people were on this. And actually, I've gotten contradictory results. In one poll with a certain wording, people really prefer to get a warning to say something like spam likely or unwanted or something like that or rob, uh, robocall or telemarket or something like that. So that was one poll. That was the majority uh, preference was don't block my calls, just give me a warning. And in a different poll, which had a similar response rate, um, a few hundred people, I got a different set of people who evidently wanted the call to be blocked. And so this was, these were spaced out by about a, a month and a half, I think. And so really you get different opinions based on which way the wind is blowing about whether uh, folks want their calls blocked or not. And I think it's partially a question of what, how much they trust the blocking. We really don't want calls blocked if I really needed to give that call. And so one of the safest options uh, that you see folks doing is just putting a notification on the call, a warning that this is likely uh, a spam call. And that's pretty useful, but it, it still ensures that you're going to get some indication of uh, the likelihood of risk, but it gives you the option of answering the call. And the other thing is it doesn't require any, to the best of my knowledge, it doesn't require any special compliance with regulations or anything. For example, caller name is an optional feature. A lot of times what you see is folks are overriding the caller name. In the cell phone networks, you're actually seeing folks in the U.S. use color name where they were never using that field before. And so they they had an un, otherwise unused field and they were able to display a color, a color name as spam likely if they if they choose to. And so that warning, that labeling on colored ID, especially color name, is a really popular option because it's kind of regulation free to a large extent. Uh, when you actually start blocking calls, you're allowed to do that. But the FCC has really strict rules around what you're allowed to do there. Um, 
if you block calls to your customers, you have to let them opt out, which means, you know, if, if whoever Andrew Ward is buying his phone service for, for his desk phone, if we're going to do call blocking across our network, we have to let Andrew block out, uh, uh, opt out in an individual line. And that obviously is a lot more complicated because it's not something I can do as a global policy up in my SPC somewhere. And, you know, have the calls come in the perimeter and decide, well, we're going to send it over to the service and we're going to, you know, bl uh, block a certain number of calls. I've got to be able to look up, well, who is this user? What is their opt-in, opt-out status? I've got to, if I'm going to be blocking, terminating calls, I've got to provide a redress procedure. So that means on my website, it actually says on your public website, you have to have a, a contact information. So people in the outside world who are not your customers can contact you and to uh, ask for overrides. And you have to be able to add those overrides and put them into effect fairly soon, about a day. And so if you've got L.L. Bean Corporation is not able to call their customers on your network, then L.L. Bean Corporation, who is not your customer, has to be able to call in and get fairly prompt service to have an override added. And so it's not just a blocking with opt-in, opt-out. It's you've got to have policies that you can you could put in to manage it. And, and there, there's work involved in that sort of thing. You've also got to provide reporting. So if you're blocking somebody's calls, you have to be able to provide reporting back to let them know what calls have been blocked. And so now, no, not only do we need to be able to provide all these overrides and policy exceptions, we've got to be able to provide reports to people who are not our customers to let them know what calls have been blocked. And when you do that, by the way, you have to be sure and uh, be, you know, CP&I compliant. So you can't leak out information about your customers that is considered customer proprietary network information while you do that. So this is a report that you're you're going to be really want want to be really careful about generating and what kind of data you know you're revealing there. There's some specific rules around using stir shaken data. So if you're actually in your blocking of calls to your customers, you're using stir shaken data to make that decision. There are some specific limitations on how you do that and what you're required to do. And then there's also limitations on the fees you can charge. A lot of folks see this as a potential add-on option that they can charge a fee for. And we see that and you see customers, uh, companies like the mobile companies, Verizon, AT&T and others providing a call blocking, enhanced call blocking service that they charge a monthly fee for. You see Vonage doing the same kind of thing. They have an enterprise call blocking service that they charge a fee for, but there are limits on when and when you could charge a line item fee uh, for doing that. And so that, that becomes a kind of another point where you'd really want to work with your lawyer on the details of whether your, your call blocking service is a potential revenue possibility. But clearly, and I'll just end there. Clearly, the uh, some service providers do see call blocking, enhanced call blocking to their to their own customers as a potential for a revenue line item on the order of three or four dollars per month per per line uh, for a consumer uh, type service. And as a service provider who's had to go through implementing all of these new rules and technology, it's not unreasonable that they might be looking for some way to get some compensation for all of that. So I can very much right. sympathize. One final note about the blocking is that there are some new rules coming out which says that if you do block a call then you've actually got to signal via the SIP response code that you blocked it through a SIP 607 or 608 I think it is back into the network where the call came from frankly I think the odds of that code getting all the way back to the originator are fairly small but but still there are also requirements about how you indicate that in your SIP signaling as well so I mean taking all of that together Personally, if I were a, a small service provider and I was looking at all of this on the inbound side, I would be seeing some benefit in you know, potentially changing the C name and giving some indication to my subscribers that this call looks suspicious and giving them the option to send it to voicemail or you know, to ignore it. But probably the extra cost involved in actually proactively blocking it and the extra risk involved in doing that seems not really to be warranted in a lot of cases. I think you're, you've got a good argument there. I think the customer expectations are going to be set 
for us. We're going to have to take that as service providers, basically as representing service providers here. We're going to have to see what customers are really demanding and expecting what they're, we're trying to do is squeeze this from both sides. We're both trying to protect our customers for, against annoying, harassing, spam, time-wasting calls. And at the same time, we're trying to block the uh, illegal calls from entering the network in the first place. Th these are the very same calls uh, that, you know, we're trying to protect them from with a, with a big net goal of making it so when somebody calls, you've got a reason to answer because you really believe that it's an individual who intends to really talk to you and, and you might even want to talk to them. You know, that's where we're trying to kind of get back to. Yeah. Yes, you know, rewind to the pre-void barrel when phone calls were something you actually wanted to answer on a consistent basis. So yeah, there's a there's a lot to be um, said for just doing a warning, especially at this point. And I think it's it, very possible that that might be the terminal point. That might be where pe people stop and they feel comfortable with that instead of doing blocking for on the inbound side. But some of this depends on the effectiveness of robocall mitigation on the outbound side for the rest of the world, you know, calls coming in to them. So we might hope that if we were able to, through Stir Shaken and through outbound robocall mitigation, originating robocall mitigation, if we we're able to address the issues, then we never need to go beyond the warning on the destination side, the terminating side, because the overall number of calls just gets reduced through the measures we're taking and it kind of ceases to become a huge issue. But if we, if we fail to do that, then eventually probably consumers are going to demand that we block suspicious calls on the terminating side because they just get so frustrated with it all. Is that what you're thinking? I think so. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. Obviously we're trying to look into a crystal ball and yeah. <laughs> see what folks are going to expect down the road. Cool. Mark, I want to be respectful of your time and we've um, already had a, a good chat here. Is there anything else you want to cover that we haven't that you think is important for people to know about? I think we've covered it pretty well. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today and to share uh, your expertise and experiences with our listeners. If folks want to get in touch with you or learn more about DCG and what you do, um, what's the best place for them to go? Probably our website is a good intro to our company. It's just ecg.co. And I am Mark, M-A-R-K, at ecg.co. So just feel free to shoot me a note there. And thanks very much, Andrew. I've really enjoyed it. Perfect. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Mark. That's great. I will include the link to the ECG website in the show notes. And yeah, for those listening, this has been VoIP for Independent Telecoms. We appreciate you listening. If you've enjoyed the show, um, please leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And hopefully we will see you again for the next episode of VoIP for Independent Telecoms. Thank you very much.